Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Travelers on public transportation will need to mask up until at least May 3rd. The federal mandate was set to expire Monday. However, the CDC said today... The order will stay while they evaluate the current uptick in cases. The news continues, so let's hand it over to Jake Tapper in Ukraine and CNN Tonight. Jake. John, thanks so much. I'm Jake Tapper, and this is CNN Tonight, live from Lviv, Ukraine, where it is just after 4 a.m. We're going to bring you all the latest developments on this huge news back home. The capture of the man police believe is the subway mass shooter in New York City, the suspect apprehended after a more than 24-hour manhunt. Someone with a very long rap sheet who has posted dozens of videos online spewing racist, anti-Semitic, and frankly, completely deranged tirades. Hear how police found him and where this investigation is likely to go from here. But first, a visceral reminder of the brutality of the war here in Ukraine. A mother in anguish as she finds the body of her son dumped in a well near Kiev. She is wailing, my little son, as she falls to her knees. She says she will not leave. Her world completely changed forever, like so many thousands of others in this country, as the Russians continue their invasion and their brutality. New satellite imagery shows Russian ground forces continuing to redeploy and move into eastern Ukraine. That is where the stage is being set for a major offensive in the Donbass region, This comes as President Biden has called Ukraine's President Zelensky, he did so today, to pledge another $800 million in military aid for Ukraine. And this just in, a first on CNN, other new satellite images of a Russian warship seen off the Crimean coast in the Black Sea. Now, Ukrainians claim that they have hit this Russian ship with missiles. There are conflicting reports this evening. We should note this is not just any Russian warship. It is a very powerful and significant one, and it is the one made famous on the day of the invasion when Russians demanded that Ukrainian soldiers on Snake Island surrender. And the Ukrainians responded with this. Our Nima Albagar is on the front lines now in Kharkiv, but let's start with CNN's Fred Pleitkin in Kyiv for us. And Fred, what more can you tell us about this Russian uh, warship, the Moskva? 
Yeah, the Moskva is a, is a guided missile cruiser and is actually the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet, which is, you know, part of the Russian Navy, Jake, that uh, over the past couple of years, really since 2014, the Russians have spent a lot of money upgrading. The Moskva itself is an older warship, but it certainly is one that is uh, very powerful. And the Ukrainians, you know, a couple of hours ago had come out with information where they said that they had managed to strike this ship, the Moskva, off the Black Sea coast. They said that they used two Neptune anti-ship missiles to do that. Those are pretty powerful missiles that the Ukrainians actually developed themselves. They fly very low and are obviously capable uh, of, of hitting ships. What we hadn't had was any sort of confirmation from the Russian side. But now the Russians, I would say about an hour, hour and a half ago, on state media, Ria Novosti, they came out and they said that this ship had had a fire on board. They didn't acknowledge that this happened because of some sort of ship anti-ship missile strike. They did say there was a significant fire on board. That fire caused ammunition on board to ignite, as they said. And they also said that the entire crew had now been evacuated off that ship. And, you know, this is a, a huge blow to the Russian Navy, to the Russian military in this uh, campaign here uh, against Ukraine. Obviously, their Black Sea f uh, Fleet flagship having been hit by a country that actually currently doesn't operate a Navy um, uh, in this conflict. So, um, you know, this is a big admission for the Russians uh, to make, and they're not coming forward with all the details, but a huge blow and, and, and really a huge victory for the Ukrainians, Jake. All right, Fred. Uh, we're also learning about how Ukrainian officials are uncovering more bodies, corpses in the Sumy region. That's in northeastern Ukraine. Um, and some of these corpses show signs of torture. This also comes on top of new video out of Kharkiv. Tell us more. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is the Sumy region. This is a region that was actually uh, taken back by the Ukrainians, I'd say about a little over a week, maybe 10 days ago, and there had already been some, some towns in that region, first and foremost Trostanets, where bodies had been discovered. And the Ukrainians now saying that they're discovering more and more hundreds of bodies in the Sumy region, some of them not only bearing marks of torture, but also having, for instance, hands tied behind their back. It's you know a grim thing that, unfortunately, we've been seeing in, in so many areas here in Ukraine where the Russian forces had been in place there and had then been beaten back by the Ukrainian military. We've seen some of that firsthand with bodies also clearly bearing uh, marks of what, what could very well be torture, bruises all over their bodies, and then also hands tied behind their backs, bags over heads, people shot in the head, um, those, those kind of things, unfortunately, quite common. And of course, something also that the Ukrainians are looking into and gathering uh, a lot of the uh, information about that for possible war crimes, crimes against humanity trials, and genocide as well. And then in Kharkiv, uh, you had what uh, appears to be the use of cluster munitions uh, with uh, those you know, very small explosions coming down in the street, where, again, there, all you see there is civilian vehicles. You can see some of those small explosions there. Those munitions, you know, normally banned from use in civilian areas, that alone could amount to war crimes, but, of course, very dangerous for civilians as well, Jake. Fred Plankin in Kiev for us. Thank you so much. After relentless shelling, uh, landmines, sniper attacks... This is what is left of Saltivka, one of the most populated areas in Kharkiv, now decimated by Russian forces. The town is on the front lines of Putin's military efforts to push deeper into Ukraine. Our Nima Albagar and her team were about one mile away from the Russian troops. Desolate, bare, lifeless. This is what it looks like after weeks of relentless Russian shelling. Saltivka the most densely populated district in Kharkiv. 
It's being bombed day after day, night after night. There are very few people left, the elderly mostly. One man stayed behind to keep his mother safe. Igor says that he lives on the 16th floor of one of these buildings with his mother. He says his mother is deeply religious and deeply committed to staying here, even though they're almost entirely surrounded. And she won't leave, so he won't leave. But this is a front line under renewed pressure. The Russians are pushing hard. That is so close. Those are Russian positions. They're shelling towards us. We are just over a mile away from the Russian forces. This is their route into Kharkiv and then on into Ukraine. For now, this is the front line. That could change at any moment now. They are trying as hard as they can to push that front line inwards. The soldiers want to show us more evidence of the heavy bombardment. The soldiers want us to move very quickly because Russian snipers are operating in this area. We've got to move. The rumble you hear is the constant shelling. The shelling's just been absolutely relentless from the moment that we've arrived. We've been hearing it. We have to be careful where we step because the Russians are also dispersing mines from the rockets that they're sending over into here. The shelling has intensified over the last few days. Regional officials told CNN this is evidence of the renewed Russian military push. Yeah, let's go. So from where we are, we're pretty much surrounded by Russian troops on three sides. Tens of thousands of Russian troops are believed to be amassing to come into Kharkiv, to come into Ukraine from this direction. We've got to move. The soldiers wanted us out of there. It was becoming too intense. Just 30 minutes later, we saw why. This warehouse is in the south of Soltivka. It took a direct hit. This is an area that, after the initial aborted invasion, has been beyond the reach of Russian ground troops. But now, once again, nowhere is safe. Ne'mal Bagher, CNN, Kharkiv. A new OSCE report finds, quote, clear patterns of violation of international humanitarian law by Russian forces. One example from the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe study describes dozens of local officials, activists and journalists in Ukraine being abducted by the Russians, the whereabouts of many of them still unknown. The report also cites many well-documented cases of the use of cluster munitions, Rockets are bombs that hold dozens or hundreds of smaller bombs inside. They're designed to discharge over a wide area, inflicting as much damage as possible. Ivana Klimpushinsasekse uh, is a Ukrainian member of parliament, and she joins us now to talk about this. Ivana, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start with the fact that you have yourself seen the atrocities in Bucha, in Irpin, in Borodyanka. Um, what do you make of this new uh, report stating that these human rights violations... Uh, are just very widespread and seem to be uh, committed as a member, uh, as a matter uh, of policy in some cases, some people say. Uh, well, thank you very much for asking. Yes, we visited with my colleagues a lot of these little villages and towns that have been basically totally destroyed. 
and uh, we have talked to all those survivors, uh, survivors of the occupation, and we see that Russians have been continuously uh, conducting this indiscriminate shelling of, of residential areas, of residential buildings, of schools, kindergartens. They have been killing, uh, deliberately killing civilians uh, just for, the, for, for them being uh, Ukrainians and for them being uh, citizens of this country. Uh, not posing any threat to obviously Russian forces. Uh, those um, horrific pictures, from my perspective, are just speaking to the fact that Russians have been um, consciously carrying out genocide acts against Ukrainian population here. Yeah, CNN cannot confirm that chemical weapons were used by the Russians in Mariupol. You, you said. Uh, that they likely are, but you're awaiting more intelligence. You've said chemical weapons are a red line that should demand a strong response from the international community. Um, what should that response be, do you think? Uh, well, I really think that it, we have to kind of go over that political divide in the decision-making when a the all the heavy weaponry, including uh, fighter jets, would be given to Ukraine in order to, for us to be able to protect ourselves. And obviously, I would like all the uh, hardest, uh, heaviest, uh, comprehensive, most comprehensive sanctions to be finally imposed on Russian Federation. Um, I think that this is something that uh, is very, very much possible to help us to defeat Russian Federation to win this war and to ensure that Ukraine has the possibility to survive and to develop the way we chose for ourselves. Putin is vowing to see the invasion to full completion, he says, with Russian forces now preparing for a new onslaught on eastern Ukraine on the Donbass region. How do you think this conflict is going to end? You know, as a, being a Ukrainian and being Ukrainian politician, I would love to see us winning. I do not think that we have any other choice to survival. I don't think that I can survive in this country if Russians will take over or any of my friends or any of my, our, um, you know, of people who have been building democratic, free and independent country um, over these 30 years of, uh, of independence. So therefore... I hope that this war, with your support, with the support of the world, uh, free world, with backing up with military uh, capacity, with sanctions, with uh, full devotion to help Ukrainians, um, is going to be ending with our victory. But it's a very, very um, high cost that is almost unbearable. Regarding the reports about Russians um, using crematoriums, to incinerate the corpses of their victims so as to hide, hide their war crimes, presumably. H have you and other members of parliament discussed any way to identify these people that have been killed and, and burned? Uh, for us, it's a, it's a big challenge because uh, that is, uh, those reports have been coming out from Mariupol. Around 13 um, mobile crematoriums have been, uh, have been recorded being used there by Russian Federation at this particular moment. Unfortunately, we do not have access to that, those areas. And we do understand that this is one of the ways how the Russians are after the Bucha massacre and, and other massacres have been revealed to the world are trying to cover up their, their crimes on our own land. So we will be um, relying 
on a recording of the the um, information that we will get from the survivors. I think that that's probably the uh, most important way how we can how we will be able to get information. Thank you so much, Ivana Klimpush Sinsazeh. Appreciate your time this evening. Much more ahead from Ukraine. Uh, but coming up, we do have information on the New York City subway shooting suspect who has been captured after a manhunt of more than 24 hours. And this guy was apparently not hiding. He was seen strolling the streets of New York City hours before his arrest today, sitting in plain sight on a sidewalk. How that arrest went down and where this investigation goes from here, that's next. We're live in Lviv, but let's turn now to the breaking news back home. The suspect in the New York City subway shooting, 62-year-old Frank James, is in custody this evening. James was arrested this afternoon thanks to a phone tip. But we should note, he's the one who made the phone tip. CNN's Bryn Gingras is at that subway station in Brooklyn, New York, with new reporting on that conversation. Bryn? Yeah, Jake, uh, sources telling me and my colleague Mark Morales that when James called into the Crime Stoppers tip line, he essentially told uh, police there that he uh, saw himself on TV and that he knew police wanted him. He also said he was headed into a McDonald's to charge his phone. And then when police tried to ask for a phone number, he said he didn't have it and the call went dead. Authorities arrived there on the scene at that McDonald's in Manhattan. He wasn't there. And then 911 calls came in, as well as bystanders flagging down police on the street to James's whereabouts. And he was arrested basically an hour after that initial call he made into the tip line. So an interesting moment there during that arrest and how it all went down. But this is the culmination to a chaotic day and a half for the NYPD and its federal partners for this investigation that really spanned several states. The gunman in the Brooklyn subway attack now in police custody. 33 shots, but less than 30 hours later, we're able to say we got him. Sources telling CNN 62-year-old Frank James reported himself to police by calling Crime Stoppers. Police later spotted him walking on a Manhattan street. He was taken into custody without incident and has been transported to an NYPD facility. He will be charged with committing yesterday's appalling crime in Brooklyn. Authorities say it was James who set off smoke canisters and opened fire into a crowded subway car Tuesday morning. We used every resource at our disposal to gather and process significant evidence that directly links Mr. James to the shooting. We were able to shrink his world quickly. There was nowhere left for him to run. Investigators determined the gun found at the scene of the attack was purchased by James in Ohio in 2011, elevating him from a person of interest to a suspect. Keys found at the crime scene led police to this U-Haul van investigators say James rented in Philadelphia, leading police to a storage facility and apartment there filled with ammunition. His motive in the attack still unclear, but investigators have pointed to repeated chilling rants by James on his YouTube account. The latest video posted on Monday where he talked about committing violence. I've been through a lot of where I can say I wanted to kill people. I wanted to watch people die right in front of my face immediately. But I thought about the fact that, hey man, I don't want to go to prison. James also advocating for mass shootings on social media. We need to see more mass shootings. Yeah, you need does not know. We need to see more. There has to be more mass shootings. To make understand, listen, you're going, you're going, you're going down. It's not, no, it's not about the shooter. Nope. 
It's not about the shooter, it's about the environment in which he is, he has to exist. Other videos included James claiming he had post-traumatic stress and more rants about race, homeless people, and the policies of Mayor Eric Adams. We are watching signs around us of those who are leaning toward violent actions, and we are ignoring them. Why aren't we identifying these dangerous threats? Why aren't we being more, more proactive wait, instead of waiting for this to happen? James's gun jammed during the shooting. Ten people were shot and more than a dozen others were injured, including five children. I don't think I could ever ride the train again. All are expected to recover physically, but the mental toll of the attack will likely weigh on the victims and everyday New Yorkers for some time. We hope this arrest brings some solace to the victims and the people of the city of New York. James is now in federal custody and the investigation behind the scenes still continues. Investigators looking through the social media footprint, going through evidence, still trying to see if they can bring even more charges against him. Right now, that, right now there's that one federal charge, Jake, and he'll be in court tomorrow. All right, Bryn Gingrass, thank you so much. Good to see you. Tonight we are getting a closer look at new video obtained by WNBC showing a man law enforcement believed to be Frank James in the subway system. You see this man dressed like a construction worker. Moments earlier, surveillance shows a similarly dressed man walking down the street moments prior to the subway attack. Joining us now is former FBI special agent Bobby Chacon. Uh, Bobby, thanks for joining us. Even with cell phone video and tons of surveillance, uh, the reason the suspect's in custody right now, at least uh, partially, is because he turned himself in. Uh, What do you think made it so tough for law enforcement to find him uh, uh, more quickly? Well, he wasn't, you know, the first thing you do is you track him. So they had his address in Philadelphia. They got an address in Wisconsin. So they were doing all the traditional law enforcement uh, shoe leather uh, that that brings you to where a person should be. Um, Manhattan and New York City in general is a big place. Lots of people, lots of people look alike. And so I bet every officer this morning at roll call got a picture or looked at pictures of this guy and they were on the lookout. It was only a matter of time. I don't I don't think. I don't see it as a problem. I, I, don't, I think he was in an area where, you know, not, none of the clues led to that particular area. I think there were certain neighborhoods that, that probably were on a higher lookout uh, for him. And those officers were probably scouring crowds looking for him. I don't think this was one of them in lower Manhattan. So I just think that, you know, it was a matter of time. And as you heard, the net was getting closer and, 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 and his world was shrinking. Um, and, you know, why a citizen didn't recognize him from a lot of the coverage, um, I don't know, but eventually they did, and and I'm glad that he was taken in before he could hurt anybody else. It didn't seem like he was hiding. He was enjoying the sunshine. He was eating a happy meal. I mean, what does that say about the suspect and his frame of mind? You know, that's an interesting question, Jake, and I've wondered that myself since hearing about him calling the tip into himself. It was very odd behavior to me. Um, it, it was almost like he was turning himself in, but not. Uh, you know, why the people at McDonald's didn't recognize him, I don't know. Maybe they didn't, you know, look at look at the pictures as much as other people did. Um, yeah, it, it's, you know, this is kind of a, a, a bit of a mystery in this whole thing. But, you know, like I said, I think he would have gotten taken into custody eventually. Uh, you know, if, if not then, within hours after that, somebody would have recognized him. I don't know how long he was out on that street. Somebody said an hour after the tip call came in is when they took him into custody. You know, I don't know how many hours before he went to that McDonald's, he was simply strolling around that neighborhood and why nobody on that street kind of and said, that's the guy I saw on the news. 
you know, it, it, it's it's difficult to say. What does the suspect's disturbing videos, uh, which advocate for mass violence, they're anti-Semitic, they're racist, they're deranged, what does it tell you about his possible motivation for that horrific act? Well, if I was looking at those videos, he, he espouses a lot of, you know, you know, you could only see him as a lone wolf, black nationalist, domestic terrorist. I mean, he was, he was espousing a race war. He distributed radical Louis Farrakhan videos. He, he said black people and white people shouldn't be in contact with each other. He said the only pe- reason black people have equality is because of violence and he espoused violence. And so it looks like he was looking at it, at some radical black nationalist ideology. And so he could be seen as a domestic terrorist. Um, but what works against that train of thought is that he, he picked a target, a train that's in a very diverse neighborhood. Um, and, and so, you know, you would think, I would have thought if he was intent on carrying out a, you know, race war or attack that would, would try to push us into a race war, he would have picked a different target because this, this neighborhood was blue collar people going to work. They were, they were multicultural, multiracial victims. And so I, I, you know, I just don't, it, it's still a mystery. Um, they're still combing over his, his social media and maybe they found things in his apartment or in some of the search warrants that will give them a better idea of what he was trying to do. But of course, this could be simply a person in the midst of a mental health breakdown and, and his actions may yeah. not make sense. Yeah, yeah. Bobby Chacon, thank you so much. Appreciate your insights. Uh, back here in Thanks. Ukraine, uh, ahead, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of additional military aid being granted by President Biden to help Ukrainians stop this invasion. The question is, how much will it help and for how long? Keen insight from a retired U.S. Army Major General. That's next. And we're back live in Ukraine. Ukrainian forces are anxiously awaiting more military aid from Western allies as Russians ramp up attacks in the east and the south of this country just today. President Biden approved $800 million in new security aid, including new types of equipment such as howitzer cannons, 40,000 artillery rounds, 200 armored personnel carriers, and more. The package will also provide additional equipment the U.S. has sent before, uh, such as MI-17 helicopters, uh, switchblade drones, and protective armor. So just how much of an impact might this have? Let's bring in retired Army Major General Paul Eaton. Uh, General Eaton, good to see you. So new satellite images show Russian ground forces moving into eastern Ukraine with these armored vehicles and support equipment and personnel carriers and artillery. Uh, how much of a difference do you think this additional aid makes to the, to the Ukrainians will make to the fighting on the ground for this battle that's coming up? So what we have, uh, to borrow from Yogi, is uh, deja vu all over again. This is what I lived in the 70s and 80s. Uh, working with NATO forces on the inter-German border, facing off against the Soviet-dominated uh, Warsaw Pact. So it's about battlefield distribution. We provide a a very large number of capabilities of systems. And you need to have the right number of systems where the enemy is going to present. The enemy has a vote. And you need to be prepared when you're on the defense, which is where we are with Ukraine, uh, to be able to manage what we used to call, and now we call again, battlefield math. We need to be able to handle 
the number of targets presented in a in a manner to uh, to defeat them uh, in greater numbers than they present. So it's it's a function of math. You got to kill them faster than they present. Mm. So let's break down some of the new equipment for our viewers, uh, beginning with these howitzer cannons. The Pentagon says this is the first time they'll be sending these uh, along with the associated rounds because it's reflective of the kind of fighting Ukrainians are expected to face. Can you explain how this specific weapon would be crucial here, uh, along with these armored personnel carriers as well? Of course. So when... When you're facing with the the Russian army, the Russian army is basically an artillery-based army. They use a terrific amount of uh, indirect fire to support the advance of their armored forces. You need to kill their direct fire systems. You need to kill their indirect fire systems. So if you match artillery with the counter-battery radar systems that we have, then when the Russian army fires artillery, you are able to capture the location of the delivery system that they've got, their artillery pieces. And you can do counter-battery radar-developed fires. So basically, it's they fire, you find them, you kill them. And that is mm-hmm. a critical component of dealing with the Russian army systems that we have right now. So U.S. officials say they're sending over the remainder of the last package and that within 24 hours, the next 24 hours, Ukraine should be receiving more Javelin anti-tank missiles, as well as a number of switchblade drones, also known as kamikaze drones, because they can detonate on impact. Where might these pieces of equipment be most useful? So, Jake, the, again, it's how you distribute these systems. Throughout the battlefield, you've got to figure out, and, and, and all the intel guys will try to discern where the main effort's going to be from the Russians coming in. And that's the art of the issue, is where do you concentrate these counter systems to be able to uh, develop uh, uh, probable fires to, to defeat the attack? So it's where do you concentrate the availables that you have? And uh, that distribution with, with all the systems that we're developing right now and delivering, and particularly the switchblade systems, because they're, this is a new battlefield system that, when concentrated, mm-hmm. develop a counter system to the attack that we're developing. Okay. Major General Paul Eaton, thank you so much for your expertise. We appreciate it. While President Biden now calls the Russian atrocities committed against Ukraine genocide, officially the U.S. government is not there yet. And one U.S. ally worries those comments could only make things worse. Former NATO Ambassador Kurt Volker will join me to discuss next. Stay with us. We're back live from Lviv. The atrocities here in Ukraine are challenging the U.S. and other Western nations to formally define the horrors under international law. But President Biden yesterday made clear how he views what's happening here. Yes, I called it genocide. The evidence is mounting. 
they're different than it was last week. The more evidence is coming out of the literally the horrible things that the Russians have done in Ukraine. In spite of President Biden's declaration, however, U.S. officials say it is not expected to trigger any immediate changes to U.S. policy, that declaration. The president himself also acknowledged that it would be up to international lawyers or other lawyers to make that determination. I want to bring in Kurt Volker. He's former U.S. ambassador to NATO. Ambassador Volker, uh, thanks so much for joining us. First, I want to get your response uh, to President Biden calling this genocide, which, uh, as we've described before, is legally defined as any action committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial or religious group. How significant is it that President Biden called it that? Well, I think it is President Biden yet again speaking from the heart. He is saying publicly what all of us can see with our own eyes, that Vladimir Putin has publicly said that Ukraine doesn't exist as a country and doesn't believe that its people are actually a separate nationality. He thinks they should all be Russians. And they have gone into Ukraine and killed civilians with a view of exterminating the country and the population. So President Biden is just saying what we can all see. I appreciate the fact that the the lawyers, the historians, the diplomats will all say, well, this needs to be verified. This needs to be assessed. There needs to be more of a process here. But I think President Biden is actually doing something significant here by saying the truth that we can see. Yeah, I mean, uh, the State Department formally uh, declared that what Myanmar did to the Rohingya in 2017 is a genocide, but it took five years. I mean, the U.S. has only declared genocide right. uh, f- uh, eight times, I think. In this case, we're, we're hearing um, this in real time, though we're also hearing that it's not going to trigger any immediate changes to policy. Um, history shows us that genocide declarations well, really often, uh, you know, well, what's your response to that? Well, I, I think that you put your finger on something that's significant here, which is changes to policy. The United States has an interest in seeing Ukraine survive as a sovereign, independent state and seeing the kind of aggression that Vladimir Putin has launched against Ukraine fail. So our policy should be set at the point of saying, what does it take to help Ukraine win? That's where we need to be. And I don't think declaring a genocide or not declaring a genocide is material to that, although it is a visible thing that we can see. Uh, I do think that the kind of assistance the U.S. is providing to Ukraine right now, that is significant and it's needed. Could have been done weeks ago, but it's finally flowing. And I think we have kind of got ourselves in the right position now. Uh, The French president, Emmanuel Macron, today warned that by using the term genocide in his view prematurely without a formal uh, investigation and declaration, that risks escalating tensions with Russia in Macron's view Um, Do you think he has any point there, especially when diplomatic talks are, you know, ongoing, although Putin called Putin said that they're at a dead end? Well, I, I certainly come down on the side of honesty and clarity. And I think where Macron is coming from is a perception that at the end of this war, Russia may be left standing. Vladimir Putin may be left standing. And France or Germany is going to have to deal with Vladimir Putin. So they're not willing to actually call things as they see them. And I think that's unfortunate. And I think that we actually are at a moment right now with the the killings of the civilians that we've seen, the executions, the torture, the rapes. We need to be more explicit about what we're seeing, calling it as it is, and then generating the action required to actually stop it. 
Russia, incidentally, uh, announced that it, it was going to impose sanctions on 398 members of Congress today. Uh, this is in retaliation for Washington blacklisting hundreds of Russian lawmakers, people in the Duma last month. Will that have any real impact? Um, and so as John McCain uh, said when he was sanctioned uh, by Russia, uh, he wasn't planning to take a vacation in Siberia anytime soon anyway. And I'm sure many of the members of Congress feel the same way. I don't think this has any material impact on them. Uh, and in fact, I think what it does show is that Russia is looking for ways to punch back. They, they don't like the sanctions. They don't like the fact that they're losing in the war. And they're trying to search for ways that may appear to be some kind of punchback to get people to be concerned. All right, Ambassador Volker, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Appreciate your time this evening. Coming up, Pleasure to see I'll you, talk Mike. with a man who raced to the scene after the Russian attack on that Ukrainian train station full of innocent people. And now he's carrying out his own life-saving mission to get Ukrainians the medical help they need. That's next. Back now in Western Ukraine, the images we're about to show you remain difficult to watch. Days later, 57 dead, more than 100 wounded in Friday's Kramatorsk train station massacre by the Russians. I spoke with somebody who heard the explosion and rushed over to help, a former construction engineer who now spends his days arranging medical transport for people in besieged towns who have been wounded. He told us about that horrible day and suspicions he has about how it all went down. The call came Friday morning from the mayor of Kramatorsk. Something had happened at the train station. Come immediately. Vyacheslav Zaporizets had heard the explosion. He ran right there. There were bodies that were torn into pieces. 57 killed. More than 100 wounded. There was a lot of blood, puddles of blood. It was easy to track how many people moved by the traces of blood on the ground. I saw a lot of elderly people, mostly women, children, and very young people that are very simple people that do not have their own vehicles. It was basically the last wave of evacuation. Before the war, Zaporizhets was a construction engineer in Kyiv. Now he spends his days driving around Ukraine, arranging medical transport for people in towns being besieged. Everyone was worried about Kyiv and the possible attacks on Kyiv. But I think everyone understands that these small cities like Kramantorsk, they are in danger even more. The evacuation is ongoing and they can be targeted. We caught up with him as he rode from one town to another. The train was supposed to leave the Kramatorsk station at 9 that morning, but it was delayed. On a beautiful spring day, people started coming to the station around 10. He suspects an informant told the Russians when to strike for maximum civilian casualties. I believe there was somebody, a saboteur or a person who exactly chose the right time when most of the people were outside and there was a crowd already gathering who might have given the command to fire the missile. Seeing all these wounded people for the last month and a half has been devastating. You've been witnessing this now for a month and a half. What has been your emotional response? I had a 15-minute chat with a psychologist, and it was the first time I felt some ease. But it's not over. A front row seat to what the Russians are doing. From what I've witnessed and seen, 
I can say I realize it's not war. It's pure terrorism. Pure terrorism. The Kramatorsk mayor said as many as 4,000 people were at that train station when the missile struck. They were just trying to escape. We'll be right back. Thank you so much for watching. I will be back tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern for CNN Tonight, live again from Ukraine. I will see you tomorrow afternoon on The Lead, which begins at 4 p.m. Eastern. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.